Well, good to um, see you all again uh, this week. Um, we've been trying to make these Bible seminars a lot more interactive, and I'm really committed to that. Uh, but over the last few weeks, uh, we've not got through all the material. Um, I'm really determined to get to the end of chapter two because this is the last week for this semester on James. Um, I want to keep it interactive, so my solution for this week is I'm going to talk a lot faster at first, uh, get through the material as much as, as quickly as I can, then give you an opportunity for questions, and then we'll move on to the next section uh, in James chapter 2, okay? Um, let's strap ourselves in. I'll start off by praying, and then we'll get going. Father, we do ask that as we look at your word, please help us to wrestle with it, the truth of it, to take it seriously, to consider it carefully, and then, Father, we pray that we would do the next step of applying it to our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, James, uh, I've been saying the last few weeks, is all about having uh, a genuine living faith. Um, we've been seeing that one of the big issues for James is that he's concerned about the creep of the world into the church, uh, the temptation of the Christian to be double-minded, to think and act and desire like the world around us uh, thinks and acts and, and does all those things. Um, instead of the way that God uh, wants us to think and act and desire. And the point he's been making is you really can't have a foot in both camps. It's impossible because they're really polar opposites, worlds apart. But Christians, we've been seeing, are prone to self-deceptions, deluding themselves into thinking that they do believe in God without seeing the creep of the world into their own hearts. And so James has been giving a certain test to check the genuineness of our faith, to help us to see uh, what we're really like. And one of the key tests he gave us comes at the end of uh, chapter one we were looking at last week, um, which is all about true and proper religion. That is the, the things that people do to honor their God. And so there are three areas that a genuine living faith will do to honor their God. Firstly, we saw it was keeping a tight rein on the tongue. Uh, we looked at how Jesus taught us that the tongue really is a window to the soul. Um, it's a signpost of where our hearts are really at. And if we really believe what the Bible says about our hearts, remember what we looked at that verse, we said it's desperately wicked, uh, deceitful above all things. If we really believe that, when we would seek to keep a tight rein on our tongues because what we're trying to do is restrain the evil that is within us that's naturally there. Secondly, a genuine living faith seeks to, to look after orphans and widows. And we looked at um, the natural inclination of our hearts, which is to follow the way of the world, which is all about taking and gaining for self. It's all about inwardly kind of acquiring things for self, like a black hole sucking everything into itself. But what we saw was that God is the opposite of that. God is a giver. He loves to give. He's the source of life. The source of every good and perfect gift we, we saw comes from above, from our Father. And He wants Christians to imitate Him in being givers rather than takers. The whole orientation towards money and possessions gets flipped on its head. Um, and that's what a genuine uh, living faith uh, will seek to, to be like. And lastly, we saw that genuine uh, religion, uh, a genuine living faith, uh, keeps oneself from being polluted from the world. And I suggested that um, uh, that's really what we keep on coming across in uh, James. And in fact, those three things are the things that we will keep coming back to as we look at chapters two to five. He expands on those areas because that's what a genuine looking faith will look like. 
All right, and we started to look last week at, at chapter two. Uh, again, we didn't get very far, so I'm going to give a quick summary. Uh, and then hopefully at the end of that, I'll give a, a couple of t- uh, minutes for questions. If we have enough time, I'll, I'll give you that dating advice uh, that flows out of the passage that I promised last week. Uh, and then we'll look at the end of uh, chapter two. Last week, we saw that the big issue of uh, verses one to 13 uh, was that we shouldn't show people favoritism. Um, humans, we, we, we said, were uh, naturally, uh, well, we naturally judge a book by its cover. That's why we've got proverbs that say, don't judge a book by its cover. Um, we judge people by the color of their skin, the clothes they wear, uh, where they fit in the pecking order of society. Um, uh, there's a whole bunch of things that we judge people by. Um, uh, but James tells us that this really is out of place in Christianity. And it was Jesus, remember, who broke down the barriers that kind of divided us in the first place. The racial barriers, the, the kind of religious backgrounds, all those things. He's kind of sought to demolish and gather together all these once disunited people into the unity that is the church. And we said last week that how wrong it was for Christians within the church, therefore, to seek to rebuild those same barriers that Jesus himself tore down. James gives us an example in verses 2 to 3 of the church treating a rich person well while treating a poor person poorly there in verses 2 to 3. And I said that it was commonplace in the world for this kind of behavior to take place but it really is out of place in the church. Um, what we didn't get much time to look at was the, the reasons for that um, that came out in uh, uh, the rest of that section uh, of chapter 2. Firstly, because of God's electing purposes in verses 5 to 7. Um, in verse 5, it doesn't say that God only chose the poor people of the world. I mean, remember 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that it's just that God didn't choose many rich or many influential, many noble of birth in the church. But he chose some. That's not James's point here. James is actually saying um, he's talking about God's electing purposes. God's choice of the poor was for a purpose. He has chosen them, he says, there to be rich in faith. God has particularly chosen the, the, the poor to be our role models in faith. He has chosen them um, uh, to be the ones who demonstrate to the rest of the church how we ought to go about trusting God. They're the ones who really do trust God for everything. They don't rely on their money. They don't rely on their abilities. They don't rely on their intelligence. I mean, that's one of the difficulties that we have at Sydney University. Being in Sydney is that we're very wealthy. We've got lots of abilities and capabilities and oodles of intelligence. We know that. Um, We demonstrated that. And so therefore, it's hard for us to really trust God for all of those things. We find it difficult. But Christians who live in poor parts of the world, they're amazing models of faith because even though they have very little, little, they love to give. They're incredibly generous with the little that they've got. Unlike us, I find it hard to let go of my possessions and and money in the way that they do. Uh, I think if I gave... Um, up the kinds of wealth that they did in in just hosting one dinner party, I'd be giving away half of my savings all the time. They don't have a problem doing that because why? They really trust God. They really believe that God has made them rich, that God has a kingdom and oodles of, of wealth 
that he will give them at the end. They really believe that. And so they delight in God. They delight in being like God as often as they can, whereas I really begrudge it most of the time. So we really should be looking up to the poor who are Christians and who live to, and who seek to live in the way that God wants them to live, not looking down on them and treating them poorly. In fact, James goes on the attack of our general regard for the rich. Uh, they're the ones who s- seem to exploit us and sue us and take us to court. And in fact, they blaspheme the name of Jesus. Now, we don't have time to look at uh, examples of that, but they exist within our world. And if you think deeply about it, you'll come up with it and it'll be really worthwhile talking about it later on. But secondly, in verses 8 to 11, um, the reason favoritism is so against uh, God and we shouldn't have it in the church is because it goes against the royal law uh, that he's given us. God's uh, law that says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's the royal law because you've got to remember that it's God, the king, who delivered this particular law that Jesus told us comes second only to the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, strength and mind. The second greatest commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the law doesn't say there anything about which neighbor. It's unqualified. It doesn't say love your rich neighbor or your Jewish neighbor. It says nothing. It's it's absolute. And that's the point that Jesus sought to make in the parable of the Good Samaritan when someone came up to him and said, what neighbor? Who's my neighbor? How can I limit this commandment? And he said, you don't. (laughs) In fact, it expands beyond what you imagined to even include your enemies, to even include the Samaritan who you loathe. There is no race, there's no gender, there's no social status attached to the command. And finally, in verses 12 to 13, the point is that we don't sit in judgment of God's law. We can't just pick and choose which laws we want to follow. Um, And we can't just come up like the Pharisees and say, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. Or love the Jewish neighbors, but hate your Samaritan uh, neighbors. Um, No, God's law ought to sit in judgment over us. Uh, God doesn't answer to us and he's not subject to our interpretation. God will be the judge of us and he will be the one who determines uh, what is right and what's wrong. We answer to God. And the warning is stark in verse 13. Here's the principle. Judgment without mercy to the unmerciful. And so, therefore, we ought to really consider carefully the poor and our desire to show mercy. We need to really consider our attitude towards others, particularly those who we think don't deserve it. What God wants us to to have in our hearts is compassion and mercy, a desire to show mercy. And mercy, remember, is given to those who we think don't deserve it. Because the warning comes the other way um, to us, we won't be shown mercy. After all, remember, that is the way that God treated us. He showed us incredible mercy and generosity. and We didn't deserve it, but God did it anyway. And that's why he expects us to deliver it to other people. He's never asking us to do something more than what he himself has done for us. He's not you know, saying, this is your standard, but here's my standard. It's quite the other way around, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. The way that God treats us is the way that we ought to be treating other people. So one of the... The tests for us 
to work out how healthy our faith is, is the way that we treat those who we think don't deserve to be treated well. The, the poor and the lowly and the marginalized of the fringes of society. And there may be certain people for us. There may be a reverse racism for us or a reverse kind of um, approach for us. Um, but whoever it is that we have a disregard for, God wants us to go out of our way to treat them mercifully, compassionately, kindly. And that is a genuine test of the faith, uh, of our faith in the Lord Jesus. Any questions on that before we move on? One that springs to mind. Um, there, there have been lots of scenarios where I've like, walked past someone that might have been in need, like um, some homeless person. So am I called to stop for every person that asks of me? And, or is just in need as well? Um, this is particularly... Um, uh, our view towards other believers in the church, I think, because it says, suppose one of you, there's someone who comes among you, or even genuine outside inquirers who come into the church. And in particular, in the church, we mustn't uh, be like that, or in the EU or any particular gathering. Um, the general, I think, rule for that kind of a thing is seek to be loving towards all people, but especially to the household of faith. If we can't do this within the church, We've got Buckleys of doing it outside the church. If you're not kind and compassionate to your own family, it's, you know, the, the general rule is you've got Buckleys of being kind and compassionate to those outside your family. Um, so uh, this is primarily, uh, the focus is, is on the church. And uh, in particular, you know, he, he really points out our, our initial inclination is to treat people um, according to the way we think they deserve or... Um, in the ways of the world, and we've got to turn that on its head internally. As to what we do when we walk past beggars on the street and all that kind of stuff, um, yeah, I think that's a little bit more complicated, and particularly when you know that there are ser like you know serial beggars who doesn't matter what you do, they won't actually take the help that you need, and or you know the way that they go about spending money on the um, the, the street. I have a long way of determining that for myself. Uh, which I don't have time for today, but um, if you want to ask me a question about it later on, I'm more than happy to answer it. Uh, just in loving, say, within our church, if we were to take, for example, say, to look around your mm. standard young adult congregation at a church, you wouldn't be seeing people in relative or absolute poverty. You wouldn't be seeing widows. You wouldn't necessarily know the orphans or those who... How, how are we in a regular church to actually identify who the Malaline people are, the people who we need to be showing compassion and mercy to are? Yeah, I, I, um, I think just don't worry so much about the church. Try to think about yourself within the church. There are people, even in the EU, there are people that you naturally wouldn't go up to. And you've got to ask yourself the question why. And I think part of it is I want to overcome that. And let me try and overcome that and go up to them and seek to, to befriend them and to work out where they're at and try to work out their situation in life. Yeah. So I, I was asked a similar question the other day. And one of the things that I've noticed within the Anglican Church, for example, that I often visit, because I keep saying to people, I'm an Anglican. I'm, uh, I was ordained in the Anglican Church. I go to an Anglican Church. That's my denomination. So I feel justified in criticizing it. Uh, but 
you can crit critique your own church. Um, I think we all can uh, work out what weaknesses we have in our denomination or our particular church and seek to address them. I'm not trying to say grumble about them. I'm trying to say address the issues. I go into various Anglican churches in my part of the, the world, which is the St. George area. I know that the demographics in the St. George area is that there are 60% of the St. George area, the non-English speaking background people. But most of the Anglican churches I go into uh, don't reflect that at all. Um, in fact, it's 90% Anglo-Saxon and very little interaction with um, the, the rest of the community that's around them. And I have a great desire to see the church reflect the community that it's in, to seek to reach out to everyone, to, to not kind of be discriminatory, to not kind of um, see a barrier to certain individuals. And so when they come into the church, I go out of my way. That's my way of dealing with the issue. I go out of my way to welcome the one who looks different to the rest of the church and to, to say to them something along the lines, it is so good to have you. So there was a, a guy, Miguel, from Peru who came to church on, on um, we don't have hardly any South Americans in our church. I went up to him. I found out that he was from Peru. Um, and then I said to him, that is fantastic. We want to see people from all nations represented in the church. How can we help? Like, do you know others in the community? How can we go out and reach them? How can we help you reach them? Because I think you'd be best um, to do that. And so I was really wanting to say, we love you, we want you in the church, and we want other people like you in the church to make him feel as welcome as possible in the church. Now, I do that because that's what someone did to me many years ago, and I felt this is wonderful. I feel really well accepted in this church, even though there's hardly any other Arabs there. And I started to immediately think, I belong and I want other Arabs to come with me and join. So that's an example that I try to give. Um, so you're going to an evening church, just don't hang around your clique. Think of it as an opportunity to really put into practice your trust in the Lord Jesus. Remember what he himself did and try to do those very things. You know, go to the the one you've neglected, the person that you've never got to know, the one who you think looks weird or is a jerk or whatever it is that you have determined in your, you know, because that's judging, isn't it? That's the kind of judgment that James is talking about. And try to address that within your own heart first. And then maybe you can actually encourage others around you to do a similar thing. All right. Um, uh, uh, feel free to keep jumping in and ask questions as we go along. The, the main point is... A genuine living faith considers carefully how they treat others, especially those who are different to them, who are not like them, who are uh, and who don't, who we consider don't have much to offer us. It's a wonderful opportunity to be generous so that we offer them. That's why the poor, uh, the, the, the orphans and the widows in particular stand out in James's because they didn't have anything to offer anyone. They're often in desperate need for themselves. And if you're going to go and spend your time with them, you weren't going to get much out of them. In fact, they were going to require a lot more from you than you could get from them. Okay? Um, but that is significant for James. Now, how does this relate to some dating advice that I'm going to give you now? Well, um, I've only got ever two bits of dating advice that I usually give to people. So I'll give them to you up front so you don't pester me in the future. First one is... <laughs> Um, the first one is, don't muck around with people's hearts. 
That's the advice that my mother gave me. Everything I tell you is always from other people. Uh, don't muck around with people's hearts. Stating um, is not one of those things that you want to muck around with. Uh, you are uh, trying to um, win people over. You're, you're generally trying to muck around, or sorry, not muck around. <laughs> I'm telling you not to muck around, but you're generally trying to get the other person I interested in you. That involves emotions, it involves the heart, and my advice is you don't do that lightly unless you've got serious intentions behind it. Secondly is, um, and this is the one that I regularly give uh, out, if you really want to get to know the other person that you're interested in, go out in a group situation. Don't think that the best way to get to know the other person is just by going out with you one-on-one. -on -one. Because if you're going out one-on-one, -on -one, of course they're going to show massive loads of interest in you. They're going to be on their best behavior because they're trying to win you over. So they will always be presenting the positive aspects of their personality to you and rarely will you get to see what they're really like, yeah? Because they won't let their guard down when they're, if they're trying to win you over. Once the chase is over, that's when they drop their guard. So the best way to do it is to go out in groups and, and observe the way that they treat other people, especially those who are not popular in the group. Do they give them any attention? Um, are they generous? Um, do they uh, put down others in the group? Do they always try to take the mickey out of someone who everyone else tries to make fun of? Or are they trying to protect and honour and, and big up other people around them? Because that is uh, um, a, a true j test of their, their character. Because if they look down on those who they find obnoxious or they speak down on people they find objectionable or if they, if they treat poorly those who seem unlovely and unpopular in the group, then I guarantee you when you're married, when you are not so popular with them, when you're being objectionable, when you're be then the way that they treated the other people is the way that they're going to treat you at that time because that's what they're like. So that's my advice. Go out in groups in order to get to know the other person. I'm not saying don't ever go out as a couple yourself separately, um, but I'm just saying that's the better way to get to know them. Um, and it, it helps you with uh, issues of purity and all that kind of stuff. Okay, um, we're gonna move on. I'm not gonna allow questions for that because I really don't have much more to offer than that. Um, <laughs> anyway, ask Katie uh, later. <laughs> all right, now we come to that part of uh, James that Luther and many of us as evangelicals uh, have had great trouble reconciling because of what Paul, what we know about Paul in the rest of the New Testament, particularly his teaching on justification by faith alone. And remember, the Apostle Paul clearly argues in Galatians and Romans for justification by faith alone. That is, that God come judgment day will not find anybody innocent on the basis of their works no one will be considered worthy of heaven because of what they have done. All of us are guilty. None of us are good enough. But because of what Jesus has done on the cross in taking the punishment we deserve for our sin, we can be saved from that eternal damnation um, and treated as though we are innocent before God and therefore accepted into the heaven that he is making for both himself and for us. So come judgment day, you are either going to get what you deserve or you receive God's gift that he delivered in Jesus, the grace that is on offer. And the way that you receive the grace, the gift of God, is through faith. 
And Paul argues that Jesus has done it all. There is nothing left for you to add to what Jesus has done. It's not like Jesus has done 90% or 95% or 99% and you've got to add that final 1% of works or 5% or 10% of works that, to make it into heaven. No, it's just about purely receiving what Jesus has done for you. It's pure faith. Faith alone. Or as he keeps on saying, faith apart from works. That classic verse that we always use, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I hope you know it as a memory verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Faith and faith alone. And Paul repeatedly separates faith from works to make it clear it's faith alone that saves you. So he says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law in Romans 3 verse 28. So it comes across like a massive jolt when we read in chapter 2 verse 24 of James, when he says, you see that a person is considered righteous, in other words, justified, same word, by what they do and not by faith alone. What's going on? Is he trying to contradict Paul here? Or doesn't he not yet know about Paul and he's, he's, he's done it without realizing it? Well, firstly, what we have to do is work carefully at what both authors are saying. Yeah. Now, we've already looked at what um, Paul is saying. So what I want you to do right now in small groups, uh, groups of twos or three, is to look at verses 14 to 19. And let's start by looking at what is the issue that James is addressing? What is the problem that he sees with people's faith, if I can put it like that? What's the particular issue that he's trying to address here uh, before we look at the answer? So what questions is he raising? And then we'll look at the answer that he delivers later. Um, so you go, uh, spend a couple of minutes, talk to the person next to you, try to work it out. Verses 14 to 19, go. Okay, how are we going? Um, anyone got an answer? What's the issue that James is truly, clearly trying to tackle when it comes to faith? This group? A person with saving faith will necessarily... Yeah, okay. Um, so you're saying that's what his argument is. What's the issue that he's trying to address? I guess flip that on its head and we'll come up with the kind of questions or issues that he's trying to address. Um, over here. Are works necessary for faith? Yep. Anyone else? We also briefly picked up on what he's saying in verse 14, which is like if you have faith without works, can that faith save you? Can, yep. So, can, yep. so the question is um, if you have faith without works, can that faith save you? So he's asking what kind of faith is it? that saves you? What is the faith that really saves? Because we all have an inclination that there are people who say they have faith, but they don't really have faith at all. Yeah. Um, and he likens it to someone professing a blessing on someone who lacks the basic necessities of life, like food and clothing. So we're talking about someone who's desperately needy. And all they do in verse 16, notice, is offer them 
mere words, a profession of blessing. Go, I wish you well. But they do nothing about it. So, in other words, it's words alone that they offer. And the question that James asks in verse 16 is, what good is it? Or what does it profit them? Or what does it profit you even, possibly? What does a desperate person who's desperately needy gain from your words alone? And the answer, of course, is nothing. It's useless. Um, If anything, it probably makes the desperate person more upset because you've done nothing about it. And here's the underlying point, I think, that James is trying, for the careful listener of God's word, is that it makes God even more upset because it's not profiting you anything either. Because what you're doing is merely expressing outwardly a good intention that you say you have on the inside, but don't deliver on it at all. And so, by another word, you're a hypocrite. And we all know what Jesus thinks about hypocrites. And the point in verse 17 is very clear. In the same way, faith by itself, in other words, faith merely expressed in words, if it's not accompanied by actions, is dead. In other words, it's no faith at all. Just because you say you believe does not actually mean that you do believe. Now, um, the next illustration I'm going to give, um, it comes with a caveat. Um, It's just an illustration. Okay, and because of my Arab background, I need to make the point fairly emphatic. This is just an illustration. But suppose I had a bomb in my backpack and I tell you I've set it to go off in exactly 30 seconds. Remember, it's just an illustration, don't panic. Um, But if you thought I was serious and if you believe me, how would you respond? Run. Yeah, that's the obvious thing. Now, if you said to me, and you're looking at me, and Karen's over there just sitting looking at me and goes, yeah, I believe you, Musa. And she just keeps on sitting there. I really do believe you. And she just sits there. I'm there going, I don't think you do. (laughs) Um, Because if you really believe me, you would act on it. That's the, the point, isn't it? Genuine faith in something means that you will result in action. There's no doubt about that. Um, And it's not that James is all about works and just getting people to act and not about faith. We've seen right from the start that James is all about faith. Chapter 1, verse 2, he makes it very clear that what matters to God is your faith. And that's why he's working trials into you to refine your faith so that it leads you to maturity. Um, It's not that James is not about faith. He's all about faith, but he wants us to have a genuine living faith that saves us. Not a dead, useless faith that tricks us into thinking, that deceives us into thinking that we are saved. But a real active faith that's living, that God will count as righteous. Does it make sense? The self-deception comes out very clearly in verse 18. Because remember, that keeps on coming up again and again in James. Uh, Verse 18, where someone can say that they have faith, Uh, without works or you can have works without faith that is that you can totally separate the two so that they never exist together some people have only faith you you can put it in Paul's language I have the gift of faith I don't have the gift of works are you telling me that the gift that I have is or you could say you're strong on that I'm strong on this 
But that is not what James is. James is challenging them. He says, you say you have faith. Well, show me your faith. How can you show me your faith? How do you know you're not deluded? There is no way of checking out someone's faith without, well, you've got to look for evidence. And what's the evidence for faith? It's they act on what they believe. That's the only evidence that you can ever get for faith. And that's the point that he, he makes. Without works, you've got no evidence at all. And the point for James is that his works are not his way of racking up righteousness before God so that God will allow him into heaven as if it's an alternate way to faith. No, his point is that his works are the evidence of his faith which saves him. James's argument is that it's impossible to separate genuine faith from works. Verse 19, even the demons believe in God and act accordingly. They've got no promise of God that they can be saved by faith. They just know that God is there, that he actually says he's going to judge them. And therefore, they shudder. They act appropriately to, to what they know of God. But you, you say you believe in God and you do nothing. You're not even, you're no better than, well, you're worse than the demons even. And he gets pretty strong in verse 20, you foolish person. He's right to because this is a matter of salvation because there's no doubt they are spreading this to others in the church and causing them to weaken in their faith and, and lose their salvation. So James turns his big gun illustrations to Abraham, the very person they're likely to, to say. So it's just about faith without works. Abraham is the model of faith. And Paul, in fact, in particular, uses the, uh, Abraham and in particular the verse that James refers to uh, for his argument for justification by faith alone. What's the point that James is making through the example of Abraham? How does faith and works interact in Abraham's life? Well, look at the way that the relationship between faith and works operates in the whole chapter. Notice the way uh, in verse 14, James is saying it doesn't save. If you, if you separate works from faith, it doesn't save. In verse 16, it does no good or profits nothing. In verse 17, it's dead. In verse 26, it's dead. In verse 20, it's useless. In verse 24, it doesn't justify. In other words, faith without works doesn't work. Now, it's true. Paul in Galatians and Romans uses Abraham as a great example of justification by faith alone. In particular, Genesis 15 verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Remember, the story there is that God promises Abraham that he will have a son who will be his heir. Abraham is old. Sarah's old. They've tried for years and years and years, and even when she was fertile, and nothing happened. Now she's infant. How is it possible for this to happen? But he believes it. And at that point in Genesis, why this is so powerful for, for Paul is, what could Abraham do to make the promise a reality? Well, there's nothing else that he could do. He's done it all for years and nothing happened. So why, what could he do? to show that he really believed. Well, nothing. He had to just trust. And that's why Paul makes the point. It's faith alone. And it's at that point that God said, you are righteous and counted him as righteous, justified by faith alone. But James isn't denying this. What he is doing is just showing how works works itself out in Abraham's faith, in Abraham's life, because much later on, after his son's born, he's asked to offer the same son that God said would be his heir. 
Now, I don't know if you don't realize this, but it's impossible for Isaac to be the heir if he dies before Abraham dies. <laughs> but God is actually saying to him, offer him as a sacrifice. In other words, kill him. Now, thankfully, he doesn't have to go through it. But Abraham, we're told, does what God says to show that he really has faith in God. The same faith, notice, that believed that Isaac would be his heir continues even as he's going to sacrifice Isaac. That is, he really continued to believe that Isaac would be the heir. How that's possible? Well, we find out in Hebrews that he believed that God could raise the dead. He'd bring him back to life. That's faith, isn't it? It's not a different kind of faith, but the action shows that he really believed that uh, promise even at the, at the beginning. The works demonstrated, if you like, that his faith was true. It was real. It was powerful. And it vindicated, here's the point, same word as justified, it vindicated God's judgment of righteousness upon Abraham regarding his faith. And the same point is made in verse 25 with the illustration of Abraham. You see, for Abraham, it wasn't mere faith, that is, faith just alone expressed as words, I believe, but genuine living faith that saved him, that transformed him. And that's the point that James is making in verse 24. It's much the same point that Paul himself makes in his letters. If you have a real living faith, it will result in you in your transformed life. It will result in you living a different way. It will result in you obeying. God, as he calls it in Romans 1, the obedience of faith. But we often forget that. That's why we say to both express Paul's main teaching, really, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always results in action, in transformation. And Paul is seeking to argue that faith alone, mere words expressed is not what saves you. Sorry, uh, James is arguing that. Paul is, is seeking to argue faith alone without works is what saves us. But James is trying to show us that faith without works is not faith at all. And therefore is not the kind of faith that Paul is talking about that saves. Does that make sense? Um, James is all about having a, Christians having a genuine living faith in Jesus. A genuine living faith is one that will work. It will change your life. It will have an impact on the way you live your life. And in fact, in particular, it will cause you to restrain your tongue, make you look at orphans and widows in different light and be generous towards them and stop yourself from being polluted from the world around you. How genuine, how living is your faith? I'll leave you with that to ponder. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. Please help us to wrestle with it. And the test that James gives us, please help us to wrestle with it for ourselves. Um, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.